And let's read through this text. If you came to church this morning, you're like, church is always talking about money. Well, I'm sorry that you came this morning. And uh, that's kind of where the text puts us in talking about riches on this earth. And um, what a challenging passage this is. I'll start at verse 20 or verse 17. You guys there? Are you guys okay? Like, come on. Pump yourself up. At least act like you want to be here this morning. That'd be great. Uh, verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Verse 18, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. Um, above, among all the things that Heather and I have tried to teach our children over the years, um, it, one of them is the need to understand the value of money. And I'm not sure at what age this happens, but somewhere along the way, children sort of begin to pick up this cultural passion for consumption that we all have. You've probably experienced this firsthand when you're pulling your shopping cart through a checkout aisle, only to be like assaulted by your kids when you get up to the checkout stand, and there's a bunch of things for them to latch onto, right? Gum and candy and Pokemon cards and Pez dispensers and all kinds of stuff. But I'm sure that you guys have experienced this before. Um, but when your kids are little, you can hardly even get through Target without hearing your kids asking for something and having to repeat yourself a hundred times and say, no, 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 not today, not today, not today. And it's intrinsically in us to want and to desire more. And it's not just our kids that struggle with this. We adults are just as bad as our kids are. I love going to Ace Hardware. Anybody else love Ace Hardware? Yeah, that's like the, the adult toy store, right? And the things that they decide, decide to put in the aisle as you're checking out um, are interesting. They're all stuff that we don't need, but as you're standing in the aisle, you're kind of thinking to yourself like, well, that, that's an easy add-on, right? And, and so we are made, like, in, in the, in, we, intrinsically within us is this desire to consume, to constantly want more. We want possessions, and we want money, and we want stuff. And all of these things have the potential to really grab a hold of us. They're, they're part of the cultural air that, that you and I breathe. And they're so woven into the fabric of our culture that we need regular reminders as to how to think and live in this kind of environment that we live in today. How do we do that in a way that honors Jesus and that we aren't just ruled by our consumption? I'm sure that you can think back to a purchase or an investment that you made at some point in your life that you've regretted later. And as we wrap up the study of 1 Timothy, we, we find a really important caution or warning about how to think biblically regarding our stuff. You see, money and possessions and stuff, even wealth in and of itself, none of these things are necessarily bad, but they have the potential to become bad. And so 1 Timothy 6, verses 17 through 19, I, I wanna kind of identify or lay out three things um, for us to think about as we consider how to handle our money. 
And there's this caution, there's a contrast, a couple contrasts that we'll go over, and then in the end, there's a couple choices that we have to make when it comes to riches. And each of them relates to how we view our money, how we view ourselves, how we view God himself. This word rich is all over the text. In three verses, Paul uses it as an adjective, a noun, an adverb, a verb, rich, riches, richly, and to be rich. And these are so used closely together that it's easy to see that, that, that Paul's trying to make an important point in regards to money and stuff. And so the cautions, what does your money say about you is the question I wanna ask. At first glance, it seems like Paul's throwing on this sort of additional remark at the end of this letter. Um, last week, it actually seemed like Paul wrapped up the letter, but then he adds this one last thought. And so we saw last week he ended with this like amazing doxology related to Timothy's charge as this man of God. However, what's actually going on here is that Paul is gonna go back to a theme that we read through in verses six, six through 10 regarding the issue of contentment and the dangers of the love of money. And beings that greed was such a blatant characteristic of these false teachers that Paul's been talking about and warning Timothy about, Paul wanted to give Timothy and the church these instructions on how to handle their money right, how to handle their wealth properly. And it's not that Paul or the Bible in and of itself is against the wealthy. However, there are a number of things for those who are rich to consider. And there are some cautions that we have to take note of. The first is this, the first caution, is that riches can be merely temporary. They're temporary. Notice verse 17 says, as for the rich in this, and what does it say? Present age is what he says. Paul could have just simply said, as for the rich, but he didn't say that. He said, as for the rich in this present age. And so he adds this additional statement, and I believe he did this on purpose. Remember what the previous section that we read through was all about. It was this call for perseverance to the very end, looking for the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, as he states it. And it was this reminder to lay hold of eternal life, to grab it. And so there was intrinsically this connection between a future life and how we think about living now. What the future life is and how that impacts how we live now. And a message that you see communicated throughout scripture is that decisions made in this lifetime actually do have implications in the next. Jesus said it this way in Mark 10, verses 29 through 31. He said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first is how Jesus puts it. And so that's sort of the positive spin on it. Jesus also turned this around and he stated it negatively in Mark 8. He said, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? And so if you put these two things together, the point should be fairly obvious, that there's this connection between this life and the next. And it's possible, it's possible to be rich, wealthy in this lifetime and poor spiritually in the next lifetime, eternally. And so Paul's caution here is to realize that riches and wealth are limited. Financial success in, in one realm doesn't always translate to success in another realm. And there's this present age and there's this age to come, that you could be wealthy in this present age and spiritually poor in the next age. And so we need to be careful. The second caution is that wealth can actually create pride in us. 
Paul wants Timothy to talk directly to those who are wealthy and to warn them. Notice he's talking about the rich, not those that desire to be rich. He dealt with that a, a, a few verses ago. But now he's talking about those that actually are, those that possess wealth. And so Paul wants Timothy to talk directly to them and to warn them. And so this word charge is this word that we've seen before all throughout 1 Timothy. And it's a really powerful word. And Paul's telling Timothy to do this, like to charge them to do this. And it's not that Paul's against somebody having money, but like many other issues, Timothy is supposed to caution those that he's pastoring in all of the areas that could be a challenge to their souls. And this is one of them. The word he uses here, he says to be haughty. Um, in the NIV, it says arrogant. In the KJV, it says high-minded. In the NASV, it says conceited. And this is a word created from two words that mean to think or cherish exalted thoughts is what it means, to be haughty. In other words, one's possessions, one's comfort, one's money can cause a person to think or to cherish exalted thoughts about themselves. And the temptation is really easy for you and I. God warned his people about this in the Old Testament after they moved into the promised land in Deuteronomy 8. It said, when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart will be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of, a, out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do good in the end. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. And so the process for us goes like this. It goes, I have this, like I like this, and I did this. Like we accomplished it ourselves. And at the center of this is, is self-importance. It's self-reliance, it's arrogance. And this continues to contribute to an arrogant attitude in you and I. But there's another aspect to this as well as it relates to expectations. And th this happens when our sort of subtle arrogance drives somebody's expectations. Then the process becomes like, I have this, I like this, I did this, but then the thing that it gets added to all of this is that I deserve this. And that's really where I think we sit as a culture today, it is th this entitlement attitude that we deserve the things that we have. We, we think that money solves the problems, that it produces comfort, that it makes things happier, that it gives people options and it gives people power. And so wealth can create a scenario where you become accustomed to getting things exactly the way you want them. Like your problems are fixed quickly because you can afford the best and the highest quality things. And so people cater to your wants and your needs and your desires. And so this happens when we become so accustomed to people serving us and jumping to meet our needs that we begin to treat everybody as if they should serve us. And so what it does is it breeds this, this sense of entitlement that can sneak in through the back door of our lives. We, we think of haughtiness as in somebody walking around with their nose in the air. Like when we read this, we think, well, I'm not like that because a haughty person is somebody who just walks around like this and acts like they have so much money and they're better than everybody else. Well, that's not totally true because a haughty person actually thinks that they're entitled to the things that they have. So they don't necessarily walk around with their nose in the air, but they do walking around thinking that everybody exists to serve, to serve their needs, to give them the things that they've become 
accustomed to. Some of us read this passage, myself included, honestly, and we think to ourselves, like, this isn't for me. This isn't, this has nothing to do about me because I'm not wealthy. But I want, to, I want you understand, to understand that it's a matter of perspective for you and I. If you were to take a global perspective, you'd find that we are more wealthy than we even realize. The poorest in the U.S. are richer than 70% of the rest of the world. The most poor in the United States are richer than 70% of the rest of the world. If you make more than $3,900 a month, you're in the top 10% of the world in earnings at more than $3,900 a month. The median family 10 years ago had a net worth in the United States of $81,000, while 71% of the world has a net worth of $10,000 or less. So we've created this American culture that has this propensity to be arrogant, to be filled with a sense of entitlement. Like, why do you think that much of the, wor the world refers to us as rude Americans? Like, there's a reason for that, right? And, and maybe it's because our collective wealth creates this perspective that has actually given us this reputation of being a rude people. And so we need to be careful because wealth can create pride. The third caution is that money actually can begin to create a false belief. And so the, the next caution we find in this passage is connected to the issue of false belief. This might be surprising for some of us, but, and it might seem a little bit over the top, but you might ask, how could money in and of itself create a false belief in us? But look at what Paul says. Nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. This word hope is such a crucial word in scripture because at its core, it's synonymous with what a person puts their trust in, with what a person relies on, what they have faith in, where their security is actually placed. And the reality is that money can create a sense of security and create, can create in us a sense of safety. It can remove something that is really important for your soul, and that's need. Like you have to have need. A person with money can become unfamiliar with desperation and dependence. They don't get it because they can make that on their own. And that's a really scary place for a follower of Jesus to sit, to stack something up so much in your life that there is no dependence on the Lord because you've begun to build that dependence on yourself. And so it takes our eyes and our focus off of him. It, it, it removes our trust from him. And what's so tragic about this is the fact that money and wealth are completely unstable and uncertain. Like Proverbs 23, 5 says, when your eyes light on it, it is gone. For suddenly it spouts wings, flying like an eagle toward heaven. One of the greatest lessons of the Great Recession in 2008 was how quickly wealth could disappear. Um, I read a thing that said that from spring of 2007 to the first quarter of 2009, household wealth fell by $16.4 trillion. It literally spread wings and flew away. In less than two years, it was gone. Devastated people, like took away all of everything that they had saved up and, and, and packed away. And so the, the, this cautionary tale here is that money can create a false belief system for you and I. Wealth can actually cause you to live like a, like a practical atheist, to be honest. You can become somebody who professes to be a follower of Jesus, but practically speaking, our lives are lived as if there is no God at all. And I think that's a, a, a trap that many of us find ourselves in, myself included, often, oftentimes that we live as these practical atheists. Somebody who professes to be a follower of Jesus, 
but lives our life as though there's no God at all because there's zero dependence on him. Money is not necessarily sinful or wrong, but there are dangers that come with it. And there are some cautions that we need to heed with regards to what money can actually do for our soul. So the contrasts. What does your view of money say about God? And so Paul's point was not just to talk about the dangers of money. His ultimate focus is to lay out a different and a better path, like the kind of path that fits with the gospel that he's talked about since the beginning of this book. That There are three aspects to this contrast, and each of them say something about God through the way we view or the way that we handle our money. One is that God is our hope, not money. He's our hope. And that sounds cliche, but this is the statement that Paul is making. In verse 17, it's really clear. Nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on what? On God. Instead of putting your hope in what money can bring you or what money says about you, Christians, believers, followers of Jesus, place their hope in God alone. And so to actually hope in God means that a person must trust him, must believe in him, rely upon him for their future. And so this begins with a person turning from their sins. Like they, they believe in Jesus and trust that the Father will actually count Jesus as a sufficient sacrifice for their sins. And so they turn to him. We trust him with our lives. And so we hope in God for salvation, and that's just the beginning of it, because it becomes this way of living for you and I. It's to believe the words of 2 Corinthians 9.8, that God is able to make all grace abound to you. And it's to agree with the psalmist, where he says, blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. It's to hear what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, do not be anxious, saying that what, what shall we eat or, or what shall we drink? But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and these things will be added unto you. And so to hope in God means that he's our supply. It means that he, in and of himself, is our provision. He's our security. And so you believe in him. You don't put your hope in money, but you put your hope in God. Second thing, second contrast, is that everything is a gift from God. And so based upon what we read here, you might get the impression that God is like against wealth, uh, that he hates wealth, or, or, or as if true spirituality was only found in this like solitary life with no possessions, uh, no money, no wealth. But we would be missing the point of this text all together if we believed that. The issue in and of itself is not money, it's what money does to us, and it's where money leads us. And so Paul gives this really important description of God in verse 17 that helps us understand how to balance all of this. He says, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. And so Paul intentionally uses this word rich again. But, but in this case, he uses it to describe how God has provided for you and I. So don't miss this. God has provided richly, not just a little bit. God has provided richly. God's not against rich provisions. After all, he's the one who made these things possible for us. And God is not against the enjoyment of these things that he's given us. It's really clear. He provides us everything to enjoy, is what Paul says. And so you don't need to feel guilty with, with what it is that you've been given or or. or you don't need to feel guilty about enjoying what it is that you've been given. But if you get one thing right, it's this. It's that everything we need to understand is a gift from God. And so this is sort of the fork in the road when it comes to money and possessions and wealth. Because the question is, does money and wealth turn you back to God? Or does money and wealth turn us inward to ourselves? 
Which direction does money have a grip on your heart this morning? And so the gifts of life were meant to be these conduits that, that create gratitude in our hearts and thanksgiving towards God, not this sort of cul-de-sac of, of like self-exaltation and, and, and arrogance and thinking that we can provide for ourselves. It's all about perspective. And it means that you see what you've been given and you know deeply in your soul that, that beginning with the gift of salvation and then extending to everything in your life, everything you have is a gift that you've received from the Lord. Everything. Like everything is a gift from God. The third contrast is that generosity is our natural response to God. And so what happens when you've come to hope in God and you see everything as this unmerited, undeserved gift from God? The the natural result in our life is generosity. That's what happens when we begin to see everything as a gift. Negatively, wealth can create pride or or, um, condescension towards others. But when our resources are seen in light of who God really is, the result then is this God-oriented generosity towards others. Like you cannot just be thankful to God because true gratitude expresses itself in generosity towards others, doing something with what it is that you've been given. And so what does that look like? And then verse 18, Paul sort of gives us this glimpse. He says, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, and to be ready to share. And there are four things here that that really are all connected, and they relate to the the orientation of the person who has been richly blessed by God. Those who have been richly blessed by God should be rich in good works and should be generous. Uh, The the book of 1 John links directly to the the gospel. And it says in verse 16, um, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And the bottom line here is that generosity is so intrinsically tied to the gospel that to not have it be a part of your life should actually cause you to question whether you believe the gospel or or, or not. And this sort of extends to more than just money and wealth because gospel-loving people should have a generous orientation in this life. And of course, this relates to how we handle our money and what we actually give away. But it's interesting that Paul includes other things too, like being rich in good works. Generosity in light of the gospel could affect our lives every single day. Richard Foster says this about generosity. He says, when we give money, we're releasing a little more of our egocentric selves and a little more of our false security. John Wesley declared that if, I, if you have any desire to escape the damnation of hell, give all you can, otherwise I can have no more hope of your salvation than that of Judas Iscariot. He goes on to say, giving frees us from the tyranny of money. But we do not just give money, we give the things money has purchased. In Acts, the early Christian community gave houses and land to provide funds for those in need. Have you ever considered selling a car or a stamp collection to help finance someone's education? Money has also given us the time and leisure to acquire skills. What about giving those skills away? Doctors, dentists, lawyers, computer experts, and many others can give their skills for the good of the community. Giving frees us to care. It produces an air of of expectancy as we anticipate what God will lead us to give. It makes life with God an adventure of discovery. 
We are being used to help make a difference in the world, and that is worth living for and giving for. I love that quote. So be generous with your time. Be generous with your home, with your schedule, with your family, your career, your car. Be a generous person. And it's a really small thing, but I've always felt as though if somebody was to ask for something I have, that I should give it to them. So I know the joke is you're going to ask me for something at the end of the service today. But I've always lived my life like that. Like if somebody asked for something, then give it to them. And my kids, I've tried to model that for my kids because I want my kids to see the kindness and generosity are at the core of a person that professes to follow Jesus. That that's just what we do. We want our home to be associated with kindness and with generosity. We want our generosity to say something about what we think about God. So much so that when people see the way we act and how we give and how generous we are, that they begin to ask questions like, why is it that they're so generous? And the easy response for you and I is because we were given to. Generosity was bestowed upon us. And so the natural overflow of somebody who professes to follow Jesus is their life becomes generous as well. That's how we show the world exactly who Jesus is. We hold things very loosely. And so what is your money and your time and your schedule and your stuff? What does it say about God? What's it say about God's generosity? Do you see everything that you have through a lens of God's generosity to you? Are you rich in good works? Does your generosity fit with God's generosity to you? Because God wants us to be rich in the right way. Which leads me to the last point. I'll ask the worship team to come up. And there's two choices that I, I, I want to lead us through as we wrap up. And, and these choices really answer the question, like, why is generosity better? Why is it a better way? Clement of Alexandria said, it's not the one who keeps, but the one who gives away who's rich. It is giving away, not possession, which renders a man happy. Verse 19 gives us these two incredible motivations for our generosity that fit with this tone of Clement's quote. The beauty of what we have here is that it shows us this much better motivation for giving than guilt because we all understand giving as a result of guilt. Anybody in this room ever been motivated to give as a result of guilt? Like you've been guilted into it to give. We've all done it. It doesn't work. In fact, God doesn't need your money and God doesn't like a, re a regretful giver. Like, he doesn't need your funds. So what serves as a great motiv motivator? One is that generosity in and of itself is a better investment. Notice specifically what Paul says in verse 19, and let it sink into your soul. Thus storing up treasure for themselves is a good foundation for the future. And this is consistently a theme in the New Testament when it comes to giving. The Bible's not against the investment of money. The Bible's against bad investment, like a short-sighted sort of perspective on the value of eternity. And so listen to the encouragement from Luke 12. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So what is it that Jesus is saying in Luke 12? And what, what is it that Paul's saying in 1 Timothy 6? 
And is there a direct sort of correlation or relationship between eternal rewards and earthly financial generosity? Because there's this clear cause and effect between giving now and spiritual rewards. And it's fascinating that the Bible uses future reward to motivate our giving. Part of the reason the Bible does this is because of a lie that we're tempted to believe when we give. There's this real feeling that when we give money that we're actually losing something. As if once you've given it, it's totally gone. And there's this temptation to try and hold on to our money because we don't want loss. We don't want to lose something that's ours. And But the scriptures, they, they speak to us like reorienting or, or thinking um, to, to begin to see what it is we give. Think in such a way that we see it as an investment into eternal purposes. And so you're not giving away and you're not losing it. You're, you're investing into a future return. Second thing is that giving reflects a greater joy. And I just love the last part of verse 19. It's sort of this sort of triumphal reminder of like my own self-seeking, money-trusting, fear-embracing soul. He says, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. And what an amazing way to say it, to take hold. It's the same phrase that we heard in verse 12, and it has this dual meaning. At one level, it's pointing towards a future life, in eternal life, and it's this idea that a person is investing in future life, and so when they arrive there, they realize what a great choice it actually was to invest in the things that they did. They'll experience the beauty of, of what giving really accomplished, and so you lay hold of that which is truly life. And to end with this, the last two verses, Paul bounces back to this one last charge to Timothy before ending this letter, and he says, oh Timothy, he says, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. He says, guard and protect that which has been put in you, Timothy. Deposited in you, invested. Guard and protect it, Timothy. And this term deposit lends to this idea that it's something that was placed in Timothy, but it was placed in him temporarily. And so you deposit something in order to utilize that which was deposited at some point. And it wasn't a savings account that, you should, never, that should never be touched. He, he shouldn't guard it and never use it, but he should protect it. He should watch over it. He should keep it. He should steward it, spend it on the proper things in the proper time. And so he tells them to avoid the, the, the nonsense that's causing people to swerve and veer and turn from their faith. And in the last few years, I don't know about you, but I feel like many believers have fallen into this trap. They listen to all kinds of versions of knowledge that in the end has just led them astray. They've veered. And maybe that's some of you in this room this morning. And the encouragement for Timothy and for you and I is to actually stay the course. Steadfastness is worthwhile and it's not a cultural norm that we live in because we live in a culture that tells us to bounce to the next thing when something that we're committed to actually gets old. And Paul's encouragement to Timothy is to stay the course, to guard, protect, keep what has been deposited in you, Timothy. Spend your life, your time, your money, your relationships, your gifts. Spend them well, church. Spend life on the things that'll matter in the next life, church. And he ends it with this, and grace be with you.
as always, may God's unmerited favor never be forgotten by us. May it always be exercised and deployed in you and I's lives. May we always be mindful of what we've been given because to forget it is to become static. And so my question and my challenge to you is really simple today, questions. Are you rich in the right way? Do you see the dangers of what money can do to your soul? Do you hear the caution in Paul's voice? Do you see what money really says about your relationship with God? Do do you see what you're missing if you try to extinguish the embers of generosity that are in your soul? This morning, my goal is not to guilt you into generosity. I wanna help you see that you're literally missing out. I want you to take hold of, lay hold of that which is truly life. I want you to be rich in the right way. And as we wrap up 1 Timothy, we move to 2 Timothy in a couple weeks, here's one key verse that I want us to remember and be thinking about from the last several months of this series through 1 Timothy, and that's this. 1 Timothy 1.5, the aim of our charge is what? It's love. The issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. I could not have a greater prayer for this church than that the aim of our charge be love that comes from a pure heart, good conscience, and sincere faith. To have a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith means that we aren't owned by the things that the world is owned by. And so as we look at wealth, I hope that you all realize this morning that every single one of you in this room is wealthy. You're all rich. You have no excuse to be to not be generous people. You have no excuse to not take that which has been so graciously bestowed upon you and let that overflow to the world around you. To hold the things you have loosely and to give them away as God leads you. To live your life in such a way that to show the world God's grace, his unmerited favor, to show the world the gift of Jesus, we live our lives in such a way that we spend that gift well. How is he asking you to spend that in your life right now? Because money may not be the thing that you have stacked up, but you've got stuff and you've got time. You've got relationships. You've got a deposit that's been made in you by somebody at some point that has been stored up for such a time as this to take what's been deposited and to spend it in such a way that you care about eternal matters and not just about your own life. So I wanna pray for us. I want to pray for us that the charge, our aim, would be love. That we would have pure hearts and a good conscience and sincere faith. Will you stand with me? I want you to lift your your hands to the Lord this morning. might I remind you as we stand here about to worship that his grace be with you his unmerited favor be with you no matter what you've done no matter where you've come from he has not turned his back on you he has given you more than you deserve he has bestowed grace upon grace on your life and I pray this morning 
we reorient our hearts and our lives around Jesus. That we begin to live our lives graciously in the same way his grace has been bestowed upon us, that the grace that he's given us be extended to others. And some of you have to release that this morning. There's things that you're holding on to, frustrations and fears and worries, bitterness and resentment. For some of you, it's money and it's stuff and it's time. But we all have something that we're holding on to that the Lord's saying, if you would just open up your hand, allow me access to the thing that I so graciously gave you. And so I pray for us, Jesus, that this morning um, we would be reminded of the grace that's been bestowed upon us. And we'd be challenged and cautioned this morning with how it is we spend and steward the grace that you've given us in such a way that we care about this next life, not just the one we're creating for ourselves now. Holy Spirit, come. I pray that you touch those in this room, that you work in their lives, that you lead them to a place this morning where they just understand your love and your grace and your faithfulness your goodness, your kindness, your generosity toward them when so many people in their lives have been so gnarly towards them. I'm grateful, God, that we serve a God that has not turned a blind eye to us, that sees us right where we're at, cares about us, knows us, and uses us. So Jesus, bless your church this morning. May our hearts be filled with worship, with awe, May our hearts be filled with gratitude this morning. We have so much to be thankful for. And I pray, Jesus, that as we exit these walls this morning, that your grace would abound in our lives, that it would literally just ooze through us, God, that the generosity of God would just pour out through us as we begin to pass that on to others. And that the world would see us as followers of Jesus, not just because of what we say, but also how we live. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.